0: Last Lord's Day in the evening time, you may remember that we talked about the great exchange. That which is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, where the Bible records simply, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Two things that are brought before us there are the subjects of sin and of righteousness. Our sin, Christ's righteousness. And when we talk about the great exchange that has taken place in the gospel, in our justification, it is that our sin has been attributed to Christ, reckoned to his account. He has taken responsibility for that sin, been punished for that sin, and in turn we have received his righteousness in the sense that we are accounted or reckoned righteous because of his righteousness imputed to us. That word imputed is used by Paul in the book of Romans especially, and it's a wonderful word. It's also used here in the context of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, except in the negative sense of not imputing their trespasses unto them. That means not reckoning those sins to be against their name any longer. So you have sin imputed to Christ. You have righteousness imputed to believers. So this is a verse that describes the greatest transaction of grace that has ever been made. As I pointed out last time, the text actually refers to three separate parties. God the Father is in view here. It says, for He. And then, God the Son is in view. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who you know sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So there you have the Son of God. And obviously you have the Lord's people. Those are the people that are mentioned as us and we. The collective pronoun being used twice here in the text. We looked at three great truths last time concerning God the Father. And I want to use the same text and go on to think about what the Bible teaches here in these words about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. There are at least three important truths concerning God the Son that come before us in this text. And I think the first one is quite obvious In those words, who knew no sin. When you read your New Testament, you read about the purity of the Saviour. And that's really the first thing that we note in the text. The purity of the Saviour. He is the impeccable Christ. He knew no sin. And that is a wonderful statement of truth. It's a vitally important statement concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if it were not true of Him, then we have no Savior. He could not save us unless He were absolutely pure. Indeed, impeccable. And this is the consistent teaching of the Bible. The blessed Son of God had absolutely nothing to do with sin. Look with me at the following scriptures that tie in with Second Corinthians 5.21. First of all, in Hebrews, in the chapter 7, it says, reading from verse 25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, You could say forevermore that come unto God by him, saying he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now look at verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And Paul is building Term on top of term to establish the point of the purity of the Saviour. And what he says there is confirmed by the Apostle Peter. In First Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, it says this, Concerning the Lord Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. So you take that first statement of Paul. He's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. He's made higher than the heavens. Peter then goes on to say he did know sin. Then you go a little further in your Bible to First John. First John chapter 3. And look at verse 5. And he know that he, that's Christ again, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So this is even a further statement of his purity, his impeccability. Not only did he do no sin, but there was no sin in him. And furthermore, we can establish that sin never was in Christ. The Saviour Himself talked about His own purity in relation to His speaking about the devil. The Lord said this concerning the prince of the world. That's how He describes Satan. John chapter 14 verse 30. Hereafter I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in him me. That's a really important statement of truth. The devil has nothing in me. There was nothing in Christ to which the devil's temptations could appeal. And when you look at the Savior in the closing days of his earthly life, before he went to the cross, when his enemies examined him when they put him under trial, even in that kangaroo court, what did they come up with as a verdict? I find no fault in him at all. Pilate had to admit this. I find no fault in him. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, referred to him in this way, I have betrayed him the innocent blood. Furthermore, Pilate's wife had a dream concerning the Lord Jesus and she told her husband about it. She said, I've suffered many things in a dream because of him. Have thou nothing to do with that just man? That just man. A man who has done nothing wrong. Pilate himself referred to Jesus as this just person, confirming what his wife said. And then the thief on the cross even had to confess. You and I, talking to the other thief, you and I, we are in the same condemnation. But this man hath done nothing amiss. He's done nothing wrong. So, no one ever could rightly accuse the Lord Jesus Christ of sin. Remember how the Lord Jesus put it, Which of you convinceth me of sin? Not one of them could answer and say, Well, you're guilty of this sin or of that sin. There's no charge that was ever made against Christ that could ever stick. Because the man Christ Jesus was not a sinner, never was a sinner, Nor did he take on our natural pollution by his incarnation. When the Lord came into this world as a man, when he took into union with his deity, our humanity, it was a humanity that was not tainted by sin. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. If he wasn't born of a virgin, he would have become a partaker of Adam's transgression. Because all men in Adam are constituted sinners. But again, let's note the words of the Apostle by inspiration in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... understand this. It's not talking about the weakness of God's law. This is not a criticism of the law. This is referring to the weakness of our flesh. This is talking about our inability to keep the law. That's what that verse is referring to. What the law could not do. It means what we couldn't do. By means of the law. Because we can't keep it. In that it was weak through the flesh. Our flesh. God sending His own Son. Look at this. In the likeness of of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Those words we must carefully note. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't send Him in sinful flesh. He sent Him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because He never sinned. And more than that, not only did the Lord not sin, He could not sin. It was impossible for Jesus Christ to have ever sinned. And that's implicit in the words of Paul here, who knew no sin. That's an absolute statement. He knew no sin. When Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of our great high priest, it says in verse 15, Of that chapter 4, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin. The thought here is apart from sin or sinless. That's what the Bible teaches. Dr. J.A. Alexander of Princeton fame, when it was a place that was worthy of biblical education and being a seminary that taught men the truth, he used to say to his students, young men always hold the very highest views of Christ. We need always to do that, to hold the very highest, the most exalted views of the Lord Jesus Christ and it is true to say that Christ could not sin there's a little booklet that Dr. Paisley produced many, many years ago it's out of print long since but it's called Jesus Christ Not Able to Sin I have two copies of it at home in that book He establishes very clearly this doctrine. Among other things he says, people will argue, when Christ was tempted by the devil, say in Matthew chapter 4, the temptations were real, and therefore Jesus must have been able to give in to those temptations for the temptations to be real. But Dr. Paisley established very clearly that that is not true. The temptations were real. Oh, they were temptations to sin, all right. But the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike Adam, who was tempted to show that he could sin, he was tempted to show that he could not sin. The devil's attacks, however, were real. And there were a couple of illustrations that Dr. Paisley gave that I thought were very good. One was relating to an invincible army. And the other was in relation to pure gold. He said, here's an invincible army. It cannot be defeated. But how do you know it's invincible? How do you know that the enemy cannot overcome this army? How do you know that this is an invincible army? How do you know this is an army that cannot be defeated? Well, the way to discover that is to attack it so when that army comes under attack it comes under assault it proves itself to be invincible because it is victorious the same with the Lord Jesus Christ he was victorious he proved that he was impeccable by the fact that the devil could not overcome him there's another great example that was given and that is of pure gold how do you know that gold is pure how can you ever establish that gold is pure gold Well, you test it. You put it under the test of the fire and the crucible. And the Lord Jesus Christ went through the fire of testing and trial and temptation. He came out the other side without any fault. He proved himself to be pure gold as far as his nature is concerned. He is without sin. And there are two Latin terms that are used in theology, one is able not to sin, and the other is not able to sin. The question is, was the Lord Jesus Christ able not to sin? Of course. But was He not able to sin? I would say, of course. He was not able to sin. Non posse peccari, peccari non posse. Able not to sin, Or not able to sin. Which is it? It's not able to sin. It's not that the Lord could have sinned, but He was so strong that He didn't. He was not able to be overcome by the devil's temptation because of who he was, because of what he was. Back to Paul's definition. Who knew no sin. This is a statement of the purity of the Saviour. But there's a second thing in the text about the Son of God. We may call it the passion of the sufferer. I must confess that there's a mystery in this text that I find it difficult to articulate. It's really hard. In fact, I would suggest that it's impossible to plumb the depths of these words. The first part of the text. For he, speaking of course of God, hath made him, speaking of Christ, to be sin for us. There are some, and in some Christian communions, they're very strong in this, who will say this simply means a sin offering. But I want to go further than that and tell you that's not all that it means. When it says that he hath made him to be sin for us, yes, he was made a sin offering for us, But there's more in this text than that. It's not that he was made just a sin offering. But look at the wording. He hath made him to be sin for us. There's a depth of mystery here that cannot be fathomed. Some other descriptions of the sufferings of Christ are given that come close to this. One of those is Galatians chapter three verse thirteen. There's a different phrase used here, but it, it indicates the same thing. Galatians three thirteen Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. So take this along with Paul's statement, made sin for us. Here it is, he's made a curse for us. The curse obviously comes because of sin. And back to Romans chapter 8 verse 3 that we read just a moment ago. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Condemned sin in the flesh. What does it mean he made him to be sin for us? Can I suggest to you that the passion of the sufferer that's referred to here is in that he identified so fully with sin when he was upon the cross that he was treated As if that sin were really his own. Now I hasten to add, that sin was not his own. Strictly speaking. But our Lord Jesus Christ became responsible for our sin. Upon the cross. And this is where the word imputation comes in. When something is imputed, it means it is reckoned against. Or it is credited to the account of. And so when sin is imputed to Christ, it is reckoned to be really His. So closely identified has He become with that human sin. And so when we come to Calvary, we think about the Lord Jesus upon the cross. He's there as a victim. And God's curse rests upon Our sin in the death of Christ. I say it's important for us to consider the great truth of imputation. When something is imputed to someone else. This is a term that signifies a transfer, if you like, from one person's account to another. If I had a sum of money in my account, it's credited to my name. If that money is wired from my account into your account, then it's against your name. It then becomes yours and it's no longer mine. There's been a transfer. It's no longer credited to me. It's credited to you. It's been debited from my account. It's credited to yours. When we talk about imputation of sin, we're talking about a transfer from the account of one to another. And this is something in our text that refers to both sin and righteousness. Both of them. Sin, which never was Christ's own sin because of his purity, but ours, it was our sin. It was transferred or laid to his account. I remember a preacher once giving a simple illustration to a sinner that he was dealing with in personal conversation. He was dealing with him as he was concerned about his soul. He said, look at this Bible, That's this black Bible. It represents sin. This is you. This sin is upon you. This is Christ. In our justification, that sin is laid upon Christ. It's taken away from you. You no longer bear it. He bears it. He's responsible for it. And what a tremendous truth that is. It's so simple, isn't it? It's so simple. And yet it is so profound. Our black sin transferred from our account and laid to his account. That's why on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were the sinner. That's why God turned away from him during those hours of darkness. He abandoned Christ because he was bearing the curse of our sin. That's why Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Our sin was laid upon Christ. The wrath of God that was our due upon the Lamb was laid and by the shedding of His blood the debt for us was paid. That's what Jesus did in His cross work. But that's not all that happened. Because righteousness which was never our own but Christ's, his perfect righteousness, was transferred. It was imputed to our account. There's this same illustration. Say this is the righteousness of Christ. This is us. Christ's righteousness is made over to us in our justification. We are looked upon by God as being perfectly righteous in him. Because his perfect righteousness is imputed to Credited to our account. So, this is a simple exchange. It is a powerful exchange. Our Lord Jesus, being perfect, was treated as the sinner and punished for sin. He was made sin for us. That's why Paul could say in the verse previous God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. Why were their trespasses not credited anymore to their account? Because they were laid on Christ's account. Isaiah 53, 6 puts it like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I love the marginal reference in that text. The Lord has made the iniquity of us all to meet on him. A great aggregate of sin that's laid to the account of Christ. This is what John meant, John the Baptist, when seeing Jesus walking along, he pointed to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He bears away our sin. Who his own self, Peter wrote, who his own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree. In this imputation, in this passion of the sufferer, the guilt of our sins really became Christ's in a legal sense. The legal responsibility for our transgressions became His. And He was therefore punished for those sins. For the holy, sinless, impeccable Christ to be made sin is something that is beyond our comprehension. It's this that made our Savior's agony so acute. When we study Gethsemane we see Him sweating great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the reason for it. He's bearing our sin. This is why He was so amazed and affrighted. This is why His holy frame shirked back at the thought of bearing this guilt because to be made sin is at the very heart and soul of our Lord's sufferings when people talk about Calvary they often want to emphasize the physical aspects of it and I don't minimize those at all the Lord suffered real pain when he was nailed with spikes to the cross in his hands and feet when he was flagellated at the whipping post, when he had a crown of thorns hammered into his head, and the the hairs plucked off his face. He suffered real pain. I could probably conjecture that he suffered more pain than the normal person would have done, because of who he was. But that's not the heart of the Lord's sufferings. The heart of his sufferings was in being made sin for us. Being punished for our transgressions. And it was all for us. We believe in substitutionary atonement. The hymn writer said, Even then shall this be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. Jesus died for me. But more than that, he died as me. He died as me. He was dealt with as the sinner. He was punished for my sin. What a mystery there is in that. And yet what a great truth that is. Here we have the passion of the sufferer. He's made sin for us. And there's one other thought thought here, and that is the provision of a standing. That, and when we read words like this, you can read it in this way, In order that, in order that, this happened, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This is the result of it. The provision of a standing, something that's provided for you and for me. Merit. The transfer of your guilt to Christ, the transfer of Christ's merit to you. This is justification. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. As Christians, we receive from God the rewards due to the righteousness of Christ. We've already been stating this. It is imputed to us. It's laid to our account. And how uniform is the teaching of the New Testament on this matter? For example, you go to Romans chapter 4. And you have a wonderful record there in the fourth chapter of Romans of the subject of justification in relation to Abraham. But in Romans 4 from verse 6, the Bible refers to the Old Testament book of Psalms, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth, there it is again, imputeth righteousness without works, saying, and here you have a quotation from Psalm 32 verse 1, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. The word that's originally used in the psalm for covered is the word for atoned for. Blessed, verse 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. See that? He will not reckon sin anymore against that man's name. And when you come on down the chapter to verse 22, speaking of Abraham, the Bible says, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. Again, remembering that that word imputed means reckoned against or credited to the account of if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. The doctrine of imputed righteousness is so important. It's at the heart of the gospel. And oh, the comfort that imputed righteousness brings to the heart of a child of God. I'm not righteous before God because of my performance. Now, do I want to live better? Of course I want to live better as a Christian. Of course I don't want to sin. Of course I don't want to let the Lord down. Of course I want to pray more. I want to read the Word more. I want to be a better witness for the Lord. But all of those things have nothing to do With my salvation. My salvation is in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is it. In a nutshell. His perfect righteousness placed against my name. So that I am viewed by God in him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Where is all my salvation bound up? It's bound up in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When I stand before God and I I'm asked the question, why should you be admitted to heaven? Jesus Christ is my righteousness. That's it. When Paul was living as a very religious Jew, he had so much that he could point to as... Credit in his account as a Jew. At least humanly speaking. He talks about it in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Here's the way he puts it. We have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3 verse 3. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. In other words, if I was depending on my credentials, I'm in a really good place. And he lists those credentials. If any other man, verse 4, thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I'm in a better position than most, he says. And then he tells you why. Circumcised the eighth day. There you have the law of God fulfilled, even in him as a baby. Of the stock of Israel, there's his heritage. Of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So here's all the credentials that Paul has as a good Jew. But he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And to count them but dung, that I may win Christ, notice this, and be found in Him. Not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. This is imputed righteousness. The merit of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only ground upon which you may be justified before God. Here's the provision of a standing. Annie Ross' cousin taking the words of Samuel Rutherford, she put it like this. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth. In Emmanuel's land I stand upon his merit, his righteousness. In Christ all believers have an abiding merit to stand upon and to stand in for all eternity. The righteous through Christ. I love that hymn. It actually was written as a poem by Robert Murray McShane there are many more stanzas to that poem than appear in most hymnals but it's the hymn that we know as Jehovah Siddhkenu it's taken from Jeremiah 23 verse 6 Jehovah Siddhkenu simply means the Lord our righteousness I once was a stranger to grace and to God I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah, said, Kenu, was nothing to me. He was able to go on to say, When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah saith, Can you, my Saviour, must be? Oh, what assurance there is in Jehovah, saith Kenny, the Lord, our righteousness. And McShane spoke of that assurance when he said, My terrors all vanished. Before this sweet name, my guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink of the fountain life, giving and free. Jehovah said, Kenu, is all things to me. is everything. The Lord, our righteousness. So tonight, believer, you can rejoice that you're eternally justified in the sight of God if you've come to Christ by faith. If you've trusted in His finished work, Then you have entered into what Christ wrought for you at Calvary. This is your hope of heaven. He was made sin for me. And therefore I am made the righteousness of God in Him. Simply, we're made righteous because He was made sin. There's another great little chorus that puts it so very well my pastors like to quote this all the time upon a life I did not live upon a death I did not die another's life another's death I rest my soul eternally that's the gospel and if you're ever to be saved this has to be your testimony are you standing upon his merit today Because he and he only is the righteousness of God. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. And all who rest by faith in him are accepted as he is in God's sight. So it's vital that we know ourselves to be in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 Refers to it in this way to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. What or who is the beloved? It's Christ. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. In the beloved, accepted am I, risen. Exalted and seated on high. God sees my Savior and then He sees me in the Beloved, accepted and free. What a standing we have in the Lord Jesus. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him.